Sometimes when we have these readings from an Old Testament prophet like Amos, it's easy to get lost in the weeds. The words kind of sound obscure. Names appear like Edom. And the notion is kind of poetic. It's a, a poetic kind of a prophecy. But listen again just to the middle of this lesson from Amos, this description of our God and what he does. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, verse 13, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. That is a picture of abundance. And not just sort of the ordinary kind of abundance that you might know when you have a really good year or when things are fruitful, but this is abundance beyond your imagination. The mountains dripping with wine. The hills flowing with it. Super abundance, we could call it. This is our God's character. That when he pours out blessings, he doesn't pour out just a little bit. He is not stingy or miserly. He is generous beyond comprehension. And in fact, he is generous to the point of seeming foolish and wasteful to our world. After all, what good is a mountain dripping with wine? How much of that wine are you losing along the way? Hills flowing with it? You can't drink all of that wine, getting soaked up into the ground, flowing down in the rivers and streams. What a waste. What a wasteful and lavish God we have, who pours out blessings in abundance. You know this from all kinds of scripture that you've heard throughout your lives. Think about Psalm 23. He anoints my head with oil, and what happens to my cup? It overflows, violating this key principle that I learned long ago about children. Don't pour more into a cup than you want to clean up. Here it is, a cup overflowing, because God pours and pours and pours does not stop. Baskets of bread left over after he feeds 5,000 people to the full. Everyone was satisfied, and yet there was more left over. His abundance is incomprehensible, causing it to rain on both the just and the unjust. Why would God do that? Give his blessings to the wicked who have no appreciation for them, like pearls before swine, people who toss away his blessings. Why would he waste his blessings on them, and yet he does. Like rain from the heavens, everywhere indiscriminately God's blessings are abundant. And he praises that kind of abundance, that kind of wastefulness. Remember the story of the woman who came to him with that precious jar of ointment and washed his feet with her tears and anointed them with oil. And Judas was there and he said, look, this is a waste. This could have been spent on something else. We could have sold that jar and given the money to the poor where it was really needed. But Jesus praises her because her abundance flows from his abundance. Her lavish wastefulness comes because she knows the grace of God, which is beyond measure. That's one of the key lessons to take away from our gospel lesson this morning, the wedding at Cana, the first of Jesus' signs, which he was reluctant to perform. His hour was not yet. He was always throughout his ministry resisting the will of the people to make him king or turn him into some sort of a miracle worker or a healer or something less than the very Son of God who pours out his life for the world. But here he is and his mother wishes him to do something about the embarrassment at this wedding. They've run out of wine. Do exactly what he says. 
Mary instructs the servants. And so he tells them to fill up those stone water jars, 20 or 30 gallons, fill them up. And there's a remarkable detail in the text. He fills them up, they fill them up to the brim, up to the very, very tippy top. There's no space at the top of those jars. Filled to the brim, 20 or 30 gallons, and just like that, they draw some out and it's wine, which gets taken to the master of the feast. And the master of the feast marvels. He doesn't marvel because all of a sudden there are 750 extra bottles of wine at this wedding, which is a marvel in and of itself. Those people at Cana, they cannot drink that much wine. He marvels, the master of the feast, because it's the best wine. Not only is Jesus' abundance shown in the quantity that he provides, more than they could ever hope to finish, it's going to go to waste. But also in the quality. I always took these words of the master to be some sort of a praise of the bridegroom. Wow, what a marvelous thing you've done, saving the best wine for last. It's not a praise at all, I've come to realize. It's a criticism. What a fool you are to save the best wine for last when no one can appreciate it. What a fool Jesus is to pour out so much abundance on this wedding. These people who had no idea who was among them and what he was doing for them. He gives them such abundance and such quality. It seems to be a waste which is how the world thinks about our God. A lot of people get bent out of shape because God is strict and just. And he holds a very sharp line when it comes to good and evil. The commandments are not obscure. They're obvious and clear. You can tell the difference between good and evil, and our God punishes evil. That's clear. But you know what really gets people bent out of shape? is the idea that God would be merciful. That he would give good things to people who don't deserve them. And beyond that, that he would give tons and tons of good things and really good things to people who don't deserve them. That's how the world thinks about God. They think if he's going to be a good God, he must be stingy. That's how our flesh thinks about him. Worst of all, when it comes to our own sins. So our flesh agrees with Satan when, it says, when he says of God, he can't possibly have grace to cover all of your sins. There's no way that he's so lavish and abundant in his mercy as to forgive the things that you have done. You know what's in your heart. There's no way that God could love you. It's a lie. It's an utter lie that comes from our perspective on the world. Skin has brought, sin has brought scarcity into the world. So we're always thinking about things as stuff, stuff that we must trade for and barter and hedge and scrape and scramble and try to conserve. We think about things like we're walking through a desert. Imagine this picture for a moment. You see somebody walking through a desert and they've got a canteen and there's just a few drops of water. Think about how precious that water is to that person. And they'll you know, conserve every drop, spread it out as much as they can. Now imagine that person comes along in this environment of complete scarcity and you meet somebody. They meet somebody along the way who says, I've got some water for you. So, great, I'll hold up my canteen, fill up my canteen. And this person, instead of being you know, really careful and pouring delicately, making sure every drop makes it into that canteen, they just take a bucket and dump it out, filling up the canteen but spilling it all over the ground. What would, how would you react if you were that desperate, famished, parched person? You'd say, wait, 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 slow down. I want to drink that water. Of course, we can't comprehend. That person can't comprehend that maybe this person who's wasting this water has come from a spring has come from a lake who has access to limitless supplies of water. That's why we can't understand. That's why the world balks at a God who is so lavish and generous. We only know scarcity and want because of sin. 
It's the original sin. Adam and Eve thinking that God was being stingy with them when in fact he had given them every good thing. The most important way that God is generous to us is in his forgiveness. So think about this. In order to forgive our sins, God sent forth his son, born of human flesh, to be humbled, to set aside everything that he possessed by divine right, and not just that, not just to be found in the likeness of sinful people, but to be placed in their company and handed over to their unjust judgment. Think about how wasteful that is. Sending the Son of God to be crucified by a bunch of people who hate him. What a waste. Of course, God does it because he knows. But that's how your sins and mine are forgiven. That Jesus' blood needs to be spilled for our sake and spilled in abundance. We don't have what it takes to cover our own sins. We don't have what it takes to give ourselves lives and salvation. We don't have what it takes, but God does. And his love for us is limitless. And so he gives it. Where sin abounds, there grace abounds all the more. His abundance beyond measure. And not just any kind of grace, but the grace that is bound up with the flesh and blood of the only Son of God. A better flesh and blood than you or I could find in this world. Given for the life of this world. Even though, even though it is lost on the world. Largely rejected. What a lavish and loving God we have. Now he is abundant in his mercy in this most precious of gifts. Forgiving our sins. But you also know how abundant he is in his mercy in giving us temporal things, things that just pertain to this life. These texts on this Sunday are all about marriage, the gift that God gives to the world in marriage, which is a great example of how God's mercy and grace are lost on the world and even on many Christians. Think about how despised marriage is in our world. And I'm not just talking about the really obvious ways that marriage is despised, but even the more subtle ways, treating, like, treating it like it's a plaything, or like it's not of divine origin, or like it doesn't give blessings in every way. We tend to think about the parts of marriage as separable. So this is one of the reasons why people struggle to understand marriage. They think about these things as be- belonging separately to the blessings that God gives us, companionship, or intimacy, or sex, or children, all of these things that we think of as separate blessings that God gives to us, and so we can pick and choose which ones we want, when in fact what God has given to the world is a precious whole marriage in which all of those blessings play out in abundance. The world can't understand it. The world doesn't know that marriage is not just one gift alongside many other gifts, but it is a foundational gift. A foundational gift that goes back to the Garden of Eden before the fall into sin. A helper fit for Adam who could be by his side. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh so that they could be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and carry out God's command. The blessing is lost on the world. In our world, most of all, in our day, most of all, we see how it's wasted like pearls before swine and even on many Christians. It's a tragic thing. It's heartbreaking. But the way that you should think about it is this, not lamenting or grieving merely the loss of marriage, but rejoicing that in spite of the fact that the world cannot comprehend it and that even we Christians fail to fully appreciate it, God still gives us this blessing. 
He doesn't say, look, you're not really going to understand this and appreciate it, so I'm not going to give it to you. It's too good for you. I'm going to hold it back. No, he still gives it to us in abundance with all of its attendant blessings. Now, we have to be cautious. We have to be careful to make sure that unlike the world, we don't separate those blessings or try to pick them apart or try to have this gift in our own way. So here's how you should think about it. Imagine that you're a kid. So think back. You're a kid and you've got a brand new bicycle. Your mom and your dad gave you a brand new bicycle. It's shiny and pristine. It's got fenders on it. It's the rave of the whole neighborhood. Everybody wants that bike. A beautiful bike. Okay? The way that we tend to think about marriage and about God's blessings generally is kind of like taking that bike and dismantling it. Thanks, mom and dad, for this bike, but I'd rather have a bike with no wheels. I'd rather have a bike with no chain. Or I'd rather take the seat and turn it around and try and ride it backwards. That's what I'd like to do. We take the gifts that God gives us, and we have them on our own terms. The world says, look, these gifts are good. Yep, that's a nice thing, marriage, but you should think bigger. You can have it your own way. What is that? Is that Burger King? You can have it your own way. It doesn't work. You can't ride a bike with no wheels. You can't ride a bike with no chain. You can't ride a bike if the seat is facing the wrong direction. So I want to be really specific about some of the ways this works in our world. We have to think specifically. Divorce is low-hanging fruit. This is easy. This is like taking that bike and just throwing it away. Thanks for the nice bike, Mom and Dad. I'm going to toss it away. I don't care. I'd rather have a different bike. Low-hanging fruit. It's no wonder that God is so serious about divorce. Why? Not just because it's a sin, breaking an oath, but it's because he wants us to have this precious blessing. He's said, this is a blessing. Yes, it comes with suffering, but why? Why is there suffering in marriage? Not because it's not a good gift, but because of sin. We knew this from the beginning. In pain, you shall bring forth children. The desire of the woman shall be contrary to her husband, but he shall rule over her. We knew from the beginning that marriage comes with suffering, and still, it's a good gift because God gives it to us. Now, sometimes it's important to know that this has to be said. Sometimes a good and precious gift of God is taken away from you. And that's heartbreaking. And it is tragic. So not every person who finds himself without a bike threw it away. Some had that bike stolen. Not every divorced person is divorced because of their sin, but because someone sinned against them. And this all points us ahead to the glory of God where we receive his blessings untarnished without any stain or wrinkle, where we ourselves are presented without blemish before God's throne. That's why the gospel matters so much. Because left to our own devices, we cannot save even the good blessings of God for ourselves. He has to give them to us. It is in him that we must put our trust. That's divorce. Others that are really common in our world are things like cohabitation. Pretending to be husband and wife, living together without marriage, enjoying some of the blessings of marriage without the public commitment, the promise, the assurance that these vows are before God and heaven and other Christians. This is like taking the wheels off the bike. Yeah, you can spin those pedals. You can drive that gear into the ground and you might move forward a little bit. But what's going to happen? You're not going to make it very far. The, the gears are going to full, be full of dirt and grime and dust and the bike's going to fall over and you've ruined. You've ruined the good gift that God has given. Or one problem that is really common in our world that is we are loath to address because of the forces of history and feminism and all kinds of other struggles in our world, it is the problem of getting the order wrong in marriage. 
The husband is the head of the wife. That's what St. Paul says, which goes back to the created order. The man is charged with the responsibility of leading his household, not just materially, not just physically, but spiritually. And the wife is charged with being as the church towards Christ, trusting and obeying. To do it any other way is, like I said, taking that seat, that bicycle seat, and turning it around and trying to drive it backwards. Not only can you not see where you're going, but you're not very good at steering with your hands behind your back. It doesn't work. There's a reason why God gives us this order. It's because it's how he blesses us, and it is good. It is good and precious. Last thing I want to pay close attention to is something that we see all the time in our world. Abortion has a direct impact on this, but even apart from abortion, it's the notion that children are not a blessing from God, that they're a burden, something to be despised. Deliberately childless marriages are like taking the chain off your bike. So you're going to pedal and pedal and pedal and not go anywhere. You're going to feel like you're working really hard. You're going to feel like you're accomplishing something, but nothing is happening. The whole package goes together in marriage. This is such a precious gift that God gives us. And when we pick and choose, when our world picks and chooses, it's like pearls are cast before swine. No, he wants us to have the whole gift. The whole gift is his blessing in abundance. Don't think about marriage as a chore. Don't think about any good thing that God gives us as something that we are bound to against our will. But think about it like rain pouring on the earth, like wine flowing down the mountains, if we think about it that way. And trust in faith that the good things God says he gives us are in fact good according to his blessing, then we will rejoice. Because we will see, now, though dimly, we will see how richly blessed we are. And at last, we will see on the last day, in glory, how wondrously our God loved us. Now marriage is a really common topic to hear about in the church, and it can feel, I know, it can feel at times like it's a dead horse being beaten. But there's a reason why God cares so much about marriage. In the first place, because we, how we think about his temporal blessings, the things that he gives us in this life, how we think about those blessings is a direct reflection of how we think about his eternal blessings. So if he says to you, here's something good for, your this, for this life, something good I want you to appreciate and enjoy in this life, and we say, no, thank you, how can we possibly appreciate and enjoy the gifts that he gives us for eternity? They are not of a different character. They come from the same God. They come by his same words of promise. So how we think about the temporal gifts that God gives us matter. They're a reflection of our appreciation of the gospel. And not least of all, marriage. Because as St. Paul said, this is a picture of Christ's love for the church. If we get marriage wrong, we cannot possibly understand the gospel. If we don't think about it properly, we obscure the gifts that God gives us in forgiveness and life and salvation. Because his love for us is the love of a true and faithful bridegroom for his bride, whom he wants to present before his father holy and blameless. That's what we need above all else. That is what he gives us in abundance. So if you've heard nothing else today, if you take away nothing else today, take away this. Your God is generous beyond measure. We do not appreciate, we cannot fathom the depths of his generosity. We cannot take in how lavish his blessings are. We receive them haltingly and in part. We cannot possibly comprehend how good he is to us, and yet he is still good. So at the end of the day, when you look at your life and you think about sin 
and what you've struggled with and where you've been. Do not look at yourself and ask whether you've measured up, but instead, look at God. Look at those 750 bottles of wine and ask if those are going to be enough for Cana. Ask whether the blood of Jesus is going to be enough to cover your sins. It surely will. It continues to be poured out for you, even at this altar. As he offers you his precious body and blood to forgive all your sins, come, put everything behind you, and cling to what is before you, the precious life of Jesus. To him alone be glory, now and forever. Amen.